0: Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry,
1: And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. What's going on in your world, Chuck? Claudine, a little bit earlier this year, I bought a bicycle. And this morning, I was cycling into work, as I do now every day, and looking up at a clear blue sky above me. I think that most listeners of the Global Insight podcast understand the difference between weather and climate. This morning, Claudine, the weather in London was postcard perfect, but the climate is not.
0: I don't think my children are yet among those regular listeners to the podcast, Chuck, but you wouldn't need to spend long with them to know that climate change is A really serious source of concern and anxiety for them, along with, of course, many, many other young people around the world. I remember myself when I was little, concerns about when oil would run out and climate change. We're also concerned too, although clearly in a very, very different way. The debates have moved on, the science has moved on considerably, but we're still grappling with those fundamental questions around how we source power and how we do so sustainably. We're recording the podcast today just weeks before the kickoff of COP26 in Glasgow towards the end of this month. And it will run over the first part of November.
1: The irony of all this, Claudine, is that in fact, COP has been meeting almost every year since those days when you were a student.
0: That's true, Chuck. It is COP26 because it is the 26th meeting of the Conference of Parties, all the different countries around the world, which are signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on climate change which entered into force in March 1994.
1: The COP26 meeting in Glasgow is taking place in the midst of a global energy crisis and a global climate crisis. The level of political, social, and economic attention being paid to this meeting is even higher than in any of the 25 preceding meetings of this body. Focus from the activist community is laser-like, and the consumer particularly here in the UK, where the conference is taking place, is looking forward to a cold and expensive winter.
2: I really think that the success should be seen in a rather modest way, and we will be lucky if at least one major breakthrough is achieved at COP.
1: That was Oksana Antoninka, a director in our political risk consultancy in London.
3: There is no unification, there is no common consensus on what qualifies as green, what doesn't. So that means what is being labelled green today might not be green tomorrow. That's the lens of risk that investors will apply to everything that gets discussed at COP and gets sort of implemented after COP.
0: And that was Reema Bhattacharya, a senior analyst in Singapore. What can we expect from COP26? Oksana, coming to you first.
2: COP26, of course, is happening in quite an extraordinary environment. Not only that we're seeing the energy crisis that is impacting all parts of the world, and particularly here in Europe, but also we are seeing an unprecedented demand from societies all around the world for decisive action around climate. Because, of course, we've seen a number of recent events that are impacting substantially people's lives, from fires everywhere to floods and all other calamities that are becoming more and more frequent. So against this background, we see now governments gathering in Glasgow, you know, hoping to clarify, you know, their commitments from Paris. While in Paris, the key question was, you know, what we want to achieve and, and, and the answer that eventually was agreed that we want to keep the global warming below two degrees centigrade. Glasgow is really answering the questions of how are we going to get there? And this is the most difficult question. Of course, you know, we had now several other meetings since Paris where countries failed to agree a roadmap. And this time we're really hoping that the governments will come up with some solutions to bring credibility
0: to the current commitments. Rima, what to your mind are the pain points of COP26?
3: These targets that are going to be discussed at COP26 will have massive implications for power generation, industrial efficiency standards, procurement, construction, public transport, waste management. Not one sector across countries around the world is going to not be affected by these kind of targets. Now, emerging markets have said that, look, not everybody can achieve decarbonization by mid-century. And countries should be able to choose a net zero year depending on their national circumstances. So there is a very big sort of, you know, tension between developed markets and emerging markets precisely on these, these issues. The second thing is, I mean, and this is very relevant for Asia, is what do we do with coal? How do we phase out coal and fossil fuels? I think the current energy crisis has shown us the risks of racing through an energy transition without a proper plan for the security of energy supply. You're looking at highly interconnected global energy markets. This is particularly relevant for China, India, Indonesia, Bangladesh. They together can remove four-fifths of uh, planned coal projects in the world. So what do we do about that? The third most important issue is on having some sort of a global system for pricing carbon and taxing carbon. Now, we have like a patchwork of rules and regulations around the world on this. And there are laggers, which are in mostly Asian countries. It's their business model to sort of produce things cheaply. They're the world's factories and powerhouses. So how do they think about carbon? How how can that be at par with what developed economies are saying? And the last, I think, most important issue is around green financing. So I think at COP, there'll be a lot of pressure on developed countries. I think emerging markets will hold them accountable to their 2009 pledge of mobilizing over $100 billion by 2020, which they've failed, mobilizing in terms of assistance to developing countries to respond to climate change. Again, access to green capital is no doubt crucial for Asia's transition to a low-carbon future. But that assumes that the region has a robust plan and financial framework to deploy it. The way I see it, I mean, Asia doesn't really have its own taxonomies or classification systems which look at its economic activities and identify what is green versus what is not green? I think the geopolitical
2: issues are going to be extremely important this year, as we are seeing the geopolitical tensions hit up ahead of the summit, to whether the success of reaching an agreement is actually going to remain elusive or whether we are going to have a breakthrough. Of course, we have several of geopolitical friction points coming into the summit. The first most important one, of course, is this new tension between United States or collective West more broadly and China. And of course, you know, Rima just mentioned that China is extremely important. It is one of the major polluter or generator of emissions. At the same time, of course, China is also leading the way in terms of the new renewable energy capacity. It is way ahead of both United States and Europe. And this tension with the West trying to get China to commit more, while at the same time, China wanting to preserve a certain degree of flexibility in sustaining and expanding its own technological leadership in the world. The second geopolitical tension point is, of course, between the countries that are producers of fossil fuels and who have the most to lose from the energy transition and from a more stricter and ambitious commitments to decarbonization, countries like Saudi Arabia, like Russia, or even some of the more developing countries like Nigeria or Iraq, you know, that are dependent on production of fossil fuels. And of course, the countries that want to see, you know, much faster and accelerated uh, transition away from fossil fuels. So the countries like Saudi Arabia and Russia, will continue to insist that fossil fuels should be seen as a solution or at least as an important part of the decarbonization story. And therefore, you know, more stricter limits should not be considered in the short term. And the final point, of course, is there's a tension between the countries that are at the moment producing a lot of materials like fossil fuels or other commodities, and the countries that are going to be empowered by the energy transition uh, and by decarbonization through their capacity to produce these rare minerals that, of course, are absolutely crucially important for the for batteries and, and other technologies. And those countries would want to see opportunities for investment, unlocking subsidies, et cetera, new financial flows in the developing world. So that is going to be an interesting story to watch as
1: well. So, Rima and Oksana, we have pain points and we have friction points. And and thank you for both of those. The lists are long. And I just want both of you to bear in mind that by the end of this podcast, you're going to have to tell us how we're going to know or how we're going to measure whether things went well or not in Glasgow. But before we do that, let's go from the state level to the business impact. Tell us a little bit about what businesses should expect from COP26.
2: Well, the first thing to say is that businesses have already been leading in many ways, at least on the energy transition side of the decarbonization story. We've seen even before COVID, but particularly during the COVID period, very substantial increase in investment in renewables. And particularly in terms of the power generation renewables, it is really now an irreversible transition with both technologies and the costs of renewable power generation you know, now substantially lower than the fossil fuels costs. And therefore, I think we are seeing uh, you know, greater progress there. At the same time, of course, businesses are starting now to look at the decarbonization in industry, where it will be much harder to decarbonize, like steel industry, for example, cement or other construction industry, where they really want to see more government action. Decarbonizing transport is another big frontier where businesses have been very actively developing new technologies, particularly in transportation, in in car transport, but also now increasingly maritime and even aviation and finally the area where we only are at the very early stages in terms of the business action is in relations to energy efficiency but this is where i think the businesses are expecting governments to really take more action to really come up both with financing but also with the rules and regulations and incentives to see a much greater demand for uh, you know decarbonization of homes decarbonization of industrial premises etc so what really businesses need in this context is a much more clarity on regulatory side of things, to really have a much more predictable and clear rules of the road globally, to have a more level playing field. And this is where the carbon pricing is important, particularly for Europe, because many European companies and, and businesses are now increasingly have to implement you know, stricter guidelines and requirements to comply with the decarbonization policies. And by doing so, of course, they want to continue to compete at a level playing field with other producers in other parts of the world who are not required to implement similarly strict uh, guidelines. And therefore this new issue such as carbon border adjustment mechanism in Europe is being discussed on top of the of the carbon pricing. Businesses also want to see, in you know, a more decisive action on adaptation to climate change. And this is where we have not really seen so far, a very practical implementation of the commitments because, of course, many businesses are suffering at the moment from the impacts of climate change, starting from the weather events that had a massive price tag just over the course of the last couple of years to really, you know, potential for stranded assets in the areas where climate change is going to have major impact, for example, coastal areas, areas where, for example, agricultural lands are no longer, you know, will be able to be uh, used in, in the future. So those kind of adaptation mechanisms really have to be agreed at at, at the meeting in Glasgow.
1: We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment, but if you're enjoying the global insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world.
0: Control Risks has been supporting clients manage the implications of climate change for decades. Responsible business is our heritage. You can find details of the services we provide under the ESG and Sustainable Business page on our website.
4: I think what's become clear in the six years since leaders gathered in Paris is that the science has coalesced much more around the importance of limiting temperature rises from from climate change to the 1.5 degree target.
0: To get another perspective on the significance of the forthcoming COP26 meeting in Glasgow, I spoke to our senior analyst on the Global Issues Desk, Joseph Smith. So Joe, what is the significance of this particular event to keeping 1.5 alive?
4: So in Paris, or as a core part of the, the Paris Agreement, governments essentially committed to come forward every five years and update their climate pledges, their so-called nationally determined contributions, essentially laying out how over the coming five to 10 years, they would reduce their emissions going forward. And with most countries putting forward their initial pledges at or before or just after Paris in, in 2015, their next round of pledges has now fallen due. And most countries. Going into Glasgow have now submitted a new round of pledges and we're expecting a few more in the coming weeks. A few significant countries still have to submit their pledges in the coming weeks before the summit starts. But what we've seen from the synthesis reports produced by the United Nations ahead of the summit is that these pledges so far really don't go far enough in cutting emissions over the next decade to 2030. The beauty of the Paris Agreement is that it encourages progressively more ambitious action over time rather than mandating cuts in emissions that can be divisive and have previously not really garnered the kind of support that is needed to actually achieve them. But within that lies one of the problems inherent in the agreement, which is that countries are encouraged to progressively increase their targets where, as the science now is telling us that we need to commit to drastic reductions in emissions in the next decade. Incrementalism won't won't really work, especially if we only are going to see countries come forward with their next round of NDCs in another five years or another four years from now. We, We no longer can afford to wait for this incremental change, and that's why there is so much significance or so much weight being put on the outcomes in Glasgow.
0: Reema, give us the perspective that you're hearing from our clients in Asia. How are they viewing COP?
3: Claudine, I think for our clients who are generally the listed companies, they've seen their market valuations now increasingly based on intangibles. And for them, traditional financial information is telling an increasingly smaller part of the story. So for them, I think COP will set a trend for innovation. Because for, for regardless of their financing needs, whether through debt or equity, what is clear to them is that their sustainability performance will play a decisive role in future expansion and access to and cost of capital. Our other clients who are really disruptors, who are looking to disrupt traditional sectors with climate positive solutions, I'm thinking automobiles, I'm thinking power, for them, COP is actually going to be a trendsetter. It's going to set out the priorities of which markets they should be expanding to. And for investors, I think the biggest challenge is to avoid mispricing and misallocation of assets because of the lack of a global reliable green order. And if you want to think about the, the magnitude of the risk, the top 100 institutional investors, mostly based in the EU and US, control nearly 20 trillion in assets, which is roughly around 30% 30% of the global share so the health of future economies depends on their ability to make the right investment calls and carefully select portfolios the biggest problem with global standards are there is no unification there is no common consensus on what qualifies as green what doesn't so that means what is being labeled green today might not be green tomorrow that's the lens of risk that investors will apply to everything that gets discussed at cop and gets sort of implemented after cop
1: so for both of you we're spending an awful lot of time talking to clients about both of the categories that you mentioned Rima and that is for companies and clients of ours that are disruptors and companies that are perhaps more traditional participants in the energy markets how has the nature of our conversation with them changed what are they asking us to help them with
2: I think our clients are looking at where is the next frontier you know where the investments should be flowing we've seen really in the last couple of years quite substantial increase in investment in renewables in Europe and United States or in China but the next big frontier of course is the emerging markets and we're seeing already now following you know covid very fast recovery in energy demand and most of it is coming from the emerging markets so the energy demand is growing it is still now mostly being met by fossil fuels But we are clearly going to see in the next three to five years, very substantial increase in both investment, but also an increase in capacity and technological innovation in the emerging world. When we look at the world, for example, in in areas like Africa or or across the Americas, or even in Eastern Europe and, and Central Asia, which countries over the course of the next three to five years? are likely to, A, provide opportunities for investment, B, will have a government capacity to implement new policies and to be consistent and stable to offer you know, investors this kind of conditions that are required for long-term investment, and finally, which ones are properly connected from the infrastructure point of view, for example, you know, grids or being able to have you know, cross-border capacity in this renewable energy space. We are looking at all of those countries. We are comparing their capacity. We are creating new bespoke variables for our clients to really monitor and understand and compare opportunities for them across different markets. On the second level, you know, is geopolitics of energy transition, something which increasing number of clients is now concerned about. And it is because, you know, for, for, for a long time, the renewable energy sector has really been perceived as, you know, risk-free almost because it was the sector where a lot of government incentives were flowing, a lot of uh, opportunities, but not as many risks. But today, it is becoming really an increasingly risky sector for our clients. First of all, we see new sanctions being introduced in the space. We are seeing now increasingly cybersecurity threats explicitly directed at renewable energy companies. We, of course, are now seeing competition for rare minerals access, which is extremely important and which is oftentimes driven by, by geopolitics. And, of course, we are also seeing now governments you know, rapidly changing their regulations, not only in the emerging markets, but even here, for example, in Europe, we've seen a number of countries which have really changed the rules of the game in the middle of many of the investment projects.
3: The renewable sector is a great case study for us to examine how our conversations With clients have evolved and and the new areas that we're helping them with. Renewable energy obviously is being pegged as a key solution for decarbonization and rightly so. In my part of the world, these investments are expanding in countries with fundamentally weak environmental and human rights protections and human rights allegations against companies are gathering force. We're doing a lot of work with clients to identify these hidden costs and hidden risks. Because what we see in Southeast Asia and South Asia particularly is governments falling over one another to roll out the red carpet in terms of courting investors who want to set up large solar power plants or wind power. There are controversial environmental clearance laws that come with it. There is is controversial land use and human rights risks. So these are all sort of legacy issues which are going to sort of haunt these sectors and, and you know not only their commercial viability but their social license to operate in the decades to come.
0: So coming back to COP and what does appear to be almost like a new version of the World Economic Forum gathering this time in Glasgow with the great and the good from the worlds of politics and commerce arriving for high-level talks What does success look like out of this meeting and and what is the cost of failure?
2: First of all, I have to say that my expectations are rather low. So I really think that the success should be seen in a rather modest way. And we will be lucky if at least one major breakthrough is achieved at COP. I do worry that failure, which in my view is very likely, is actually going to set not only the setback, the progress towards decarbonization, but could also uh, you know, aggravate tensions between China and the West, you know, aggravate the kind of political instability in many countries as societies demand more accountability from governments on, on climate. But my number one issue that I really want to see coming out of COP is agreement around climate finance and really... Serious commitments from the developed economies to support decarbonization in the developing world. And also, of course, to support climate adaptation action because we really need to make progress on adaptation uh, in the coming years because the cost of climate change is becoming really very high and will be unequally distributed around the world.
3: My wish list for COP includes some of the areas that we were just discussing. So, a big global commitment on pricing and taxing carbon, where countries, major polluters at least agree and then have common consensus to set up carbon markets and regulate them. The other thing on my list is ambitious but realistic targets by countries like China and India. I think that that itself is going to be a huge thing that sort of transforms the rate at which the world decarbonizes by mid-century. And I think the last one on my list is some sort of sunset clauses on the use of fossil fuels and a planned strategy for phasing out energy subsidies. So those are the top three things on my list. And that is what I think success would look like if, if at all we reach consensus on any of these issues.
0: I think it's worth mentioning there, is it, Rima, that we have the G20 taking place just before COP starts in Glasgow. The outcome of that, if there is one, a significant one on NDCs, nationally determined contributions to reducing emissions from the members of G20. If we get clear commitments from those G20 members at that meeting in Rome, that will get COP off to a great start. Whereas vice versa, if we fail to see those, that's already lowering expectations considerably in terms of what we can expect from COP.
1: What we're going to do is we're going to come back and we're going to go through Rima's wish list and Oksana's managed expectations, perhaps and study the success or failure of COP26 in the very near future.
0: For now, though, Oksana, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you. It's a pleasure.
1: Rima, thank you very much for joining from Singapore.
3: Chuck and Claudine, it was great chatting with all of you today.
1: That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world.
1: You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicki Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now.
0: And goodbye from me.